Okay, so let's jump into this new series. Today we're talking about alter egos and shadow missions. So that's a pretty heavy, uh, could be a heavy topic, but hopefully we can make it light. But the goal of this morning is just to sort of begin to talk about what does it look like when our spirit man takes the front runner of us, right? So for those of you that don't know, God created us as a triune being. We're three parts, right? We are spirit, which is the God part of us that is eternal. That's when we die. That's the part that continues to live on. And then we are soul, and then we're flesh. And our flesh is the earthly body that decomposes when we die. And the soul is sort of the supernatural glue between the two. It has an otherworldly element to it that binds us to our spirit, and it also binds us to our flesh. And so in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, you guys have heard me say this before, but when Adam and Eve fell, right, when they ate the apple, it says, and their eyes were opened. Interestingly enough, they were already seeing, right, because they were functioning in everyday life. They were seeing with their natural eyes. So what eyes were opened when they sinned? It was their spiritual eyes. It was, the, in my opinion, in my interpretation, it's the eyes of their soul. And so in that before the fall, their spirit, the part of them gifted from God that's eternal, was leading everything they do, helping them make good decisions, helping them think the way they're supposed to think. And then when the eyes of their soul were open, I'm giving the very overview here, when the eyes of their soul were open, now there's this war between us, <clears throat> right? Where now we feel drawn to do the things we're not supposed to do. But we also feel drawn to do things we are supposed to do because our spirit is trying to lead, but now our soul wants to lead too. It was designed to blindly follow. But because of sin, it's the eyes of our soul got open, and so now there's a war. I love it. I think it's Romans where it says that the word of God is living and active, able to pierce uh, oh goodness, bone and marrow and joint and flesh. And to me, that's like when the word of God comes in and it says, listen, you're, you can live from your spirit. You don't have to live from your soul. The soul carries our woundings. The soul carries our traumas. Our, we're going to talk about that in future weeks as part of this discovering who we are. But ultimately, even just this morning in worship, I wasn't going to talk about this, but um, this God just started just blasting me with just, this is ultimately about discovering your spirit, man. And I hadn't, honestly, I hadn't thought about that aspect of this series yet, but it's so true because our spirit man is essentially who we really are. And that part of us, when we are living in our spirit correctly, right? Like we're letting our spirit be what guards our thoughts, right? For example, Romans tells us to take every thought captive because sometimes those thoughts come from our flesh. Sometimes those thoughts come from our soul and some are coming from our spirit, right? So even though we are one person, we're all one brain, we have vying parts within us. So to live fully alive in God means that we've allowed our spirit man to break out and to be the part of us that is everything we are. Does that make sense? In other words, we say to our soul, you come in line behind me. And let me put it this way. King David says in Psalms, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Why? Because in that moment, his soul doesn't want to bless God. His soul is saying, this is terrible. I hate my life, spiraling into this negative thought pattern. But his spirit is saying, no, God is good. I'm supposed to honor God. So his spirit, in a sense, in his own, you know, this is internal, his spirit looks at his soul and says, you bless the Lord. That's what we're doing here. We're not having an argument with ourselves about whether life is bad. We know life is good. This is a hard circumstance, but we know God is good. And he's saying to his soul, you bless the Lord. Doesn't matter if you feel like it because his spirit man was leading him, right? So this whole series, <coughs> excuse me, I think we're going to probably call it On Mission. I'm not totally sure. 
I want to find a name that really when we talk about it, it, it makes sense to you, right? But the goal I know from the Lord and the download that he's given me, see, this is a series I've been having in my heart and Grant and I have been talking about for almost six months, talking about, God, when do you want us to do this? And all of a sudden it's now. And so I'm really excited. And I'm really hoping you guys jump fully in, get the book, you know, engage with us in this process because this is a God time. Because as we discover who we really are and as we learn how to let our spirit man be our leader, then life begins to be amazing, even if your circumstances don't change. It's pretty crazy, in my opinion, right? I've been in difficult situations where I can still feel so blessed and and connected to God. Why? Because your spirit man is the one having the conversation. You can be in difficult situations and feel horrible about your life. And that's the time to step back and go, is this my soul? Do I need to put my soul in check? Right? Right? I have a big sign in my house that says, bless the Lord, oh my soul, so that all the time, and I know some people might think, oh, that's really pretty, it's a pretty verse, but to me, it's a violent reminder of when I'm having a bad day, bless the Lord, oh my soul, right? You get in line, because we're not that way. We're not going to be like that. We're going to do the things that God has called us to. We're not going to make excuses. We're not, you know. All right, so one of the things I want to talk about today is what is it like when we have an alter ego? So the definition of an alter ego, anybody heard, you know that phrase, people familiar with that phrase? Definition of an alter ego is a second self or a double life, okay? Now, you could take an alter ego down the road into, like, personality disorder. We're not talking about that extreme. We're talking about when you're one way with some people and another way with others. When you're one way with your family, but everybody else in your life knows you as someone different, right? We all do this in some way, and and some of it's not bad. I want to make sure I preface that to say there's a place where the inner circle gets to see parts of you that the whole world doesn't get to see. That's not wrong. That's good. That's a good boundary to have. But there's other times in life where we're so afraid of what people are going to think that we end up creating a separate persona in hopes that they might accept that person more. James puts it like this in James 1.8, talking about a double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. And it goes on, in the Amplified, it defines a double mind as restless in all of his ways, restless in thoughts, feelings, and decisions. When we allow alter egos in our life, we are unstable because we're not being true to ourselves. There's this thing in us where we all want to be accepted. Anybody not want to be accepted? I mean, that would be just kind of strange, right? To be like, I'm, I'm good, don't accept me. There's this desire in us. We want to be accepted. We want to be liked by people. But some of us have a tendency to look at being liked by people as the goal in life. And so when that's our goal, you begin to create different personas. Have you ever been around somebody like that? It's like when you get up close to them, you start realizing, oh, you're not actually, like, you know, let's talk about people in Ivy League intellectual philosophical circles. And so they can do all these big words that aren't coming to me right now because that's not the circle that I run in, right? They can hypothesize and do all these things. And then you get up close to them and all of a sudden you realize they don't, they're not really like that. They actually like, you know, grade eight level reading. They don't really care about PhD level reading, but they think that's what is likable, so they take on this persona. <clears throat> Some of you guys may have family members that are like that. When we do that, when we create this world of alter egos, what we're essentially doing is living our life by fear, Fear of whether we're going to be rejected, fear of truly being accepted, right? Because if we're honest with ourselves, when you're truly who you are, there's going to be people who don't like you. It's a bummer. 
because we want everybody to like us, but you kind of have to weigh it. And I want to just say it as bluntly as this, to look at it and say, would I rather people like me or would I rather be who God created me to be? Would I rather everybody like me to where I don't even necessarily like myself all the time? Or would I rather be myself and inadvertently maybe lose some friends in the process? Because when we're good at alter egos, we end up making friends with people who don't really know us. So when God gets a hold of our spirit and he starts to break that spirit man out and you start to live as you're called to be on the mission that God has given you to, then people start to go, whoa, wait a minute, I didn't know you were like that. You're like, I've been like this all along, but because you're hiding that part of yourself. You guys tracking with me? So alter egos can be really dangerous. We are not called to be liked and accepted. We're not. We're not called to be liked and accepted. We're called to be like Jesus. And unfortunately for us, Jesus was very rarely liked and accepted. I mean, even if you look at this, I remember one mentor telling me, he said, think about how many times Jesus was misunderstood. And I thought, oh, man. That's, I don't want to think about that, right? Because if we're made in the, in the image of God and we're called to be like him, I don't want to be misunderstood. I want people to understand my motives, my thinking, I want my actions. I want them to, like, to think that way, but that's just not human nature. And even Jesus, in his greatest moments of his disciples having revelation, they still didn't fully understand. So he carried this really beautiful balance of what it's like to love people and feel misunderstood what it's like to have people close to you and also know they don't fully understand you. Why? Because he was so confident in who he was and he knew his mission. He knew it. He was sold out to that. That's why he came to earth. I want to talk for a second about shadow missions. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Excuse me. And um, I think that this is something that's been, I think this is really important for us to, to acknowledge that we all have a mission in life, okay? We're going to get into it in a minute of what a mission is and what it's not. But as much as we all have a mission in life, we also have another shadow mission. In other words, here's our mission. And when the sun is shining, there's this little place of shadow right here, right? And in this place, this, this is like a secondary mission that feels really good to us, that we could live in all the days of our life and not really, and, and maybe feel fulfilled, but not have a fulfilled that thing that God has called us to. And the shadow mission is usually fueled by our ego, by our wounding, by something we're trying to get for ourselves. And I want to reference a couple of biblical people that lived in a shadow mission. Okay, do you guys feel like you understand what it is? Okay. So one that you can see very clearly in his life is Abraham. Abraham had a calling by God. You and your wife are going to go be the father of many nations. Over the point of those 25 years, there were multiple times that Abraham compromised the greater mission of his life for a shadow mission. One would be God told him to take your wife and leave your family, but he brought Lot with him. And Lot actually caused him a lot of burden over the course of his life, right? And I think God knew that, which is why God was saying, leave your family. But Abraham was like, I've left them all. I'm just bringing Lot because in his own natural mind, he couldn't understand how he would have an heir. So that was why he brought Lot. And, And that was a shadow mission, right? He was trying to feed something in himself to feel like he had an inheritance to pass on and all of that. We can look at it as Sarah, when he passed Sarah off as his wife, when he, when he created Ishmael, when he willingly chose to make Ishmael, right? All of those were shadow missions, close enough, but not exactly what God had called him to. And it, was, it created a lot of pain in his life. Another one would be Joseph. Joseph wanted to be great. He had been given a dream by God that he was gonna be great. He had this desire to be a ruler, right? Some of us have that. That's not a bad thing. It's here in the Bible. But in his flesh and in his shadow mission, he wanted to take that. And so he, he told all of his siblings, 
check out how great I am, thinking, I guess, that they would just immediately bow down. You know, he must have been asleep the previous years of his life because siblings don't do that, (laughs) right? But he does. He's like, this is my moment. I'm going to take this. And it causes him a lot of pain because he has a moment in his shadow mission. Esau, this is a great example. Esau sold his birthright for a meal because he was too lazy to make it for himself. God had given him a mission and he literally sold it away. Shadow mission at play. We have Esther, um, you know, Esther, she, when Mordecai comes to her and says, this is the reason, you know, your whole people are going to be taken out. Esther has a moment where she goes, no, no, it's not going to work. Right? Shadow mission of her saying, I don't, I don't think I can do what I'm ultimately called to do. I need, I need to just settle for this thing. And thankfully, Mordecai is able to get her back on track. And she goes, all right, I'm going to go for my actual mission and see God show up. And the last one I want to talk about is Jesus. Even Jesus had a shadow mission. It's kind of interesting to think about, right? When he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, one take on that, one interpretation of that scripture would be that he's telling Peter, you're calling me to my shadow mission, not to what I'm ultimately called to. And so you got to get behind me because even Jesus was tempted to live a degree off of what his ultimate calling was. And again, we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sweating blood and he's telling God anything but this, God, right? I know you've told me, but I just don't want to. I want to read this quote from this book, The Path. It's about Jesus' shadow mission. It says, Jesus' mission, he had said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly, right? John 10. And the quote says, when the woman caught in adultery was brought before him, he refused to judge her, saying again, my mission is not to condemn, but to give life. So knowing his mission helped him decide how to act. That's powerful, right? Obviously, Jesus always did what he saw the Father doing, but in that moment, he was able to see what the Father was doing because he was able to go, you know what? My mission is for people to have life, not to condemn. And when they're all telling him, hey, Jesus, condemn this woman, which would be his right as a rabbi, as a a spiritual man, it would be his right to say, to pass judgment on sin, but he knows, no, that's not what I'm actually here to do. I don't know about you, but that's really powerful for me. So we are going on mission. We're going on mission as a church. We're going on mission individually. I'm hoping you go on mission in your life as we do this series. And and so part of this book process is talking about creating a mission statement for your life, but from a very different standpoint than what we normally do, right? Normally we think mission statement, we think corporation, we think bullet points, we think big picture, but this mission statement is essentially um, a one sentence about your life, and it's something you'll never fulfill until you die. It's sort of like the overarching banner of why you're here on this earth. So we're here on the earth for two things, right? To be with God, and then to do what God calls us to do. If we get those out of order, we get really crazy, right? We can fall into the alter ego thing. We can fall into the shadow mission thing when we start to make our do more important than our be. We are always called to just be with God. And if nothing else, that is an extremely high calling, to be with God. As I was preparing for today, I was just talking to the Lord about, you know, all the different things that people can be, all the different missions that you can have. And the Lord was reminding me, he said, you know, your mission is not, doesn't have to be something that's quantifiable or even special or sparkly to other people. It's just basically being true to yourself. It's basically just owning. This is who God has made me to be. So for example, some of the greatest people in the kingdom of God are um, elderly men and women who are praying in their little prayer closets that nobody knows their name and they're shifting heaven and they're shifting the plans of the earth because they're connected with the heart of God and they're being themselves. 
Or maybe it's worship. Maybe it's being a worshiper. You can be a dynamic worshiper and never be called to be a worship leader. You can change heaven and atmospheres by the way you worship God and never be called to a stage. Same with communicating all these different things in life, right? So the enemy wants us to look and say, you, your mission has to be something that other people can ooh and awe about. But in my opinion, the best mission you can have is something that you personally ooh and awe over. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Why? Because we're not called to be liked and accepted, right? I hope for your sake it happens for you. But it may not. It may be something that your mission in life is something that feels alienating to some people. That's okay. As long as it's from the Lord and you're doing that with all your heart. Okay, I want to get into, um, let me say this first. She talks about a personal mission statement acts as both a harness and a sword. Okay, it harnesses you to what is true about your life and it cuts away all that's false. And essentially, that's what this series is about, is cutting away what's false, what we falsely think about ourselves, and, and harnessing what's really true. Is anybody excited about that? I know I am. Every time I go through seasons like this where God's redefining who I am or just helping me see it on a better picture, every time it's like, wow, God. And not wow, because I'm so amazing. Like, wow, because you were so intricate with me. And if he's like that with me, he's like that with you right? That's what the Bible says. And I love watching you guys get to have those moments too and the different times that we've talked through these different things and getting to see everybody's light bulbs go off of, wow, look at how God made me in this way. It's such an amazing thing to get to ooh and awe over who God made you to be. Oh, I love it. So I'm really excited about this. All right, I want to run through um, 12, excuse me, 11 myths about mission, okay? Because the truth of the matter is, we are all not very clear about what mission statements are. Like some of us just have perceptions and ideas of things that just aren't very true about it. I love how Lori Beth says, most people's missions unfold as a bloom rather than take off like a bang, right? So it's not something that you necessarily just, bam, this is your mission in life. It unfolds like a bloom. Case in point would be Abraham, 25 years until the covenant was really established in his life. From the moment that God told him, go on this journey with me, I'm going to do great things, 25 years later, it bloomed, it took place over time. So here we go, 11 missions, so 11 myths, excuse me. So this is from the book. Myth number one, my job is my mission. Okay, so your mission in life is always going to be bigger and larger than your actual job. Thank God, right? Thank you, Lord, because some of us don't always like our jobs. Uh, number two, my role is my mission. Now, this is big, and, and she makes the point that statistically women have a harder time with this than men for some reason. But my role is my mission. In other words, like your role as a mother, as a grandmother, as a wife, um, as a teacher, you know, something that you do that's not necessarily a vocation, um, a breadwinner, a dutiful son, those are some of the things that you can have as a role. And, and some of us actually think this is, my, this is my will in life, right? But what's interesting is you had a mission before you became a mother or father, you had a mission by God that, that overarches even a role that you may have. <clears throat> so your mission is always bigger than your current role. And what's interesting, too, is when you look at, you know, empty nest seasons, I haven't been there yet, obviously, but I know statistically that sometimes there's a lot of depression that comes in to families in that standpoint, especially women who are stay-at-home moms. And then all of a sudden now they have, you know, their whole day has been changed around. And, and a lot of that's because they're, they accidentally looked at their role as their mission in life. And then now all of a sudden that their role changed, what mission do you have, right? So our mission is something that overarches all of that. So in season, as seasons change and come and go, it still remains doable and applicable, which I think is awesome. All right, number three, my to-do list is my mission. 
That's a myth. That's not true. Number four, I am not currently living my mission. So I don't know about you, but sometimes we feel that way, right? We feel like we know what our mission is, but we're not currently living it. But, you know, she makes the statement that it's highly probable that you're already living your mission at some level. So the goal for you would be to increase your awareness so that you can live your mission to the fullest extent rather than halfway. I think this is pretty true. If you feel like I'm not really living my mission, but if you, if you identify it correctly, you can back up and go, you know what? Actually, I am doing some of these things. Um, all right, number five, I'm not important enough to have a mission. That is a myth, right? It's a myth. You are, and God has already given you one. So in my opinion, you might as well seek it out. There's nothing you can do to lose that mission, I actually, I, I sometimes think that, you know, when God dreamed you up before you were even conceived, that he gave you a calling, he gave you a, a mandate, a mission, an identity, and then he put you into your mother's womb. And so that thing was already sealed. It had nothing to do with what you've done in life, the decisions that you've made, right? You can always come back in line with that ultimate part of who you are. Number six, my mission has to be big or grand or, have, uh, or help a lot of people. Most likely it's not but it is really big to you, right? It, I, th- I honestly think in the Christian world, this is something that's so fascinating to me, how many of us believe that the appropriate mission we're supposed to have is to look like Mother Teresa or Christine Kane or someone or Billy Graham that's you know, traveling the world and doing all these things. It's like we all sort of have, and then when we think that, then we carry this sort of subtle shame that ours is just not good enough. And when we don't believe that our mission is good, then we don't pursue it. Because why would you, right? If you don't value who God has made you to be and what he's called you to do, then why would you make the steps, why would you take the steps to actually do something about it? Let that sink in for a second. This is an interesting one. I'm curious, um, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just curious to know how many of you would struggle with this one. Um, This is a myth. A mission must be full of suffering. Or that God's will for you would be to do something that you don't like or aren't good at. So your mission must be full of suffering or doing something that you're not good at. Um, you know, I think it'd be, it's important to, to take, let me put it this way, beware of taking on a mission that fits someone else's needs, not your gifting. It might look better to you, but is it looking better to you because of an alter ego that you've established that you think is a right way to live? It's heavy thought, right? But when we peel back those layers, we begin to look and say, you know what? Maybe I just thought that that's the goal of Christian life, right? Let me put it this way. If you're from the South at all, anywhere down, you know, past the Mason-Dixon line, you probably have some sort of an idea that a woman's place is to be a helpmate primarily to her husband. But what if God's mission for you is to do something that's beyond that, right? Not that that's bad. That's a very valued calling, a lot of men need that calling, right? And that's a good thing. But some of us are not called to that. But if we've created it, I, I had this. When I got to college, I went to a, a, Baptist, a Southern Baptist college, and, um, and everybody there, all the women I was around, all of them, it was like, my goal in life is to marry a good man and then just like be a mom. And I was like, that's interesting. And that was not my goal. My goal was to be you know, 30 before I was married, to travel the world, do all these crazy things, live in New York City or some really 
fancy place like that. And I was so dumbfounded for a while, but I didn't have a Christian family that I grew up in like that was teaching me what that was supposed to look like. And I, I didn't realize that God was using my parents in their calling. I just thought, you know, you, you put a picture on things, you put a box around things. And so when I started seeing all these women with this certain viewpoint, then it, it gave me the message that a godly woman does these things. That that's the, that's the epitome of a godly woman's life is to teach Sunday school if that's in your heart or to, you know, have dinner on the table and rear the children in sort of this little house on the prairie type thing. And that, I'm not knocking that because that's a valuable calling. I have women friends that that is their highest calling and it's beautiful to see them do that. I'm just not that. And so there was this massive struggle that happened in my heart because I'd created this image of what that's supposed to be like. And I tried my hardest to cram myself into that mold. And time and time again, it would hurt so bad. And I couldn't figure out why. And I remember getting to this place of burnout. And and essentially what God was showing me was, you've created this picture, this form of what a godly woman looks like. And it's not you. And so there was always this subtle shame in me of like, I, you know, I need to be more whatever or less whatever to fit this mold. And all of it was wrong. And so as I started seeking God, who did you really make me to be? He started peeling back the layers of this alter ego I had created, right? Where he's like, that was never you in the first place. You put that on yourself. So get rid of that and then come discover what it's like to be you. I'm like, okay. So as I discovered what it's like to be me, I actually became a lot better mom and wife. It's kind of weird. Because now it wasn't about me trying to be like some other mother that I idolized in a sense, right? Because I had so focused on them instead of Jesus. That's what an alter ego does. We focus on something besides Jesus to define our personality or our giftings. So, um, yeah, so I think that this number seven, a mission must be full of suffering, is a part of that too. When we create this idea that what it looks like to be on mission with God looks to be in the bush of Africa fighting malaria once a year and all this crazy stuff, and then we go, well, I could never do that, so let's not even engage with what a mission for my life could be. That's a myth. All right, number eight, my mission must be the same as that of my peers. My mission must be the same as those of my peers. This is a big one, too. I've been hearing this statistic like four different places. So did anybody ever have that happen to you? And you're like, okay, apparently I need to pay attention to this, right? I'm getting the message, God. There's a quote that I, another quote I might share at a different time that I've been seeing. And we walked into a furniture store the other day, and there was a set of books. And the quote was like, listed out on each of the bindings of the book so when they set together and I I just literally started laughing out loud I was like this is the fourth time I've seen this quote I've never seen it before that's amazing but or maybe the fifth time for that one but this one I've seen four times and it's a statistic and it says you this is interesting it says you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with so think about it for a second how you are how you live your life is going to be the average of the five people you spend the most time with So then you kind of take a step back and you say, okay, who I want to be, who God has called me to be, does that person, can she or he be that in the context of the five closest people I'm spending time with? I'm not saying ditch your friends. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying just take a look, right? I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this because this quote has been surrounding me in all these different places. Grant wanted to listen to an audio book on a drive we did, and it was in the audio book. And I'm like, okay, you know, how would you even know it was in that book? And I've been thinking about it. I've been going back over my life from essentially high school on, and I've been looking at all the different friendship groups that I had and who I was in that time frame. And it was really interesting because there are parts of myself that came out at different times 
based on the people that I was closest to. I'm not an athlete. You guys know that. But when I was in high school, my best friends were really big athletes. So I did all kinds of sports. It's shocking to me now to look back and actually remember I enjoyed in a you know, 30, 40 degree weather to go out and play soccer where you're getting hit with the ball and it hurts so bad because your legs are numb. You know? And I was like, but I loved it. I felt like there was a, a, a mission there for me, even though there wasn't because the people I was around were so influencing me. Going into college, I told you that story of becoming, trying, trying to become a homemaker mother, which you know, just wasn't me. And then I moved into other spheres where it was like different, you know, one of, the, one of the best seasons of my life, I was leading in the youth ministry under our youth pastor who was a dynamic leader. He's probably one of the best leaders I've ever known, like leadership leaders, you know. And there was a part of me that came alive that, that has thrived because of that walking in that circle, right? So if you step back and look at your life, and I want you to do this over this week, to just kind of pay attention. Who are the people I spend the most time with? And how, if at all, are they affecting me? How is my involvement around them either dulling my passions or fueling my passions? How is my relationship with them making me want to retreat a little bit and out of you know, who I feel like God's called me to be? Or being around them, does that make me feel supercharged to do what I'm called to do, right? So I'm not saying ditch your friends, but I think once you become aware of it, then you can start recognizing I need to add people into my life that really helped me be on mission. That was the big thing for me. It's not like I felt like I needed to ditch my friends or anything like that because I have great friends, but it was looking at it going, okay, but who else do I need to add into this circle to help me like, be productive in this calling that God's called me to? All right, <clears throat> number nine, geography is destiny. This is a myth of your mission. Geography is destiny. So it says your cityscape is affecting you more than you realize. If you're called to be a farmer or a wildlife photographer, Oklahoma City might not be the best place for you to do that, right? Some of us don't realize how much our cityscape is actually affecting our mission. Now, most of us your geography sort of becomes a, a helpmate to what you're ultimately called to do, right? What you're calling, what you're called to do is actually bigger than what one city could hold. But if your calling is farming, you might have to reevaluate that. So there should be a natural and a positive alignment between your mission and your city. Number 10, what I am doing is as close as I can get to my real mission. It's a myth. What I'm doing is as close as I can get to my real mission. This is a big one and sort of a sober one, right? Because a lot of times we do settle. We're like, okay, I'm called to be a leader. And so I'm leading in this capacity. And it's not fully what I felt like my calling was. But I'm leading. It's close enough. It's a myth. When we have a mission from God, let's go for it directly. Right? It doesn't necessarily mean we quit our job. But we start taking steps towards, Lord, how can you position me to do that thing that I'm called to do, or to use my calling, because remember, our mission is bigger than a job, so to use my calling in a job that fits better with that. All right, number 11, are you ready? Life is random, even I was an accident. This is probably not a myth that you guys struggle with very much, but people you know might. Some of us really do think, even I was an accident, right? My parents didn't plan to have me. We all know there are no accidents. There are only surprises. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? Mama Rita. But life is not random either. God created you with a mission. He called you with something specific. So we can't for a second even humor an idea that we're just living here pointlessly, right? That's a dangerous place to live. So those are our 11 myths of being on a mission. I don't know, is that helpful to you guys? Helpful to start identifying? So, you know, 
A few years ago, we did a series called Bravely Boldly, and the series was about, we did several different personality tests. For those of you guys that were here, we had my brother, who's a certified Gallup Strength Finder coach, come in, and we did a seminar that night on how to utilize your own strengths, and we might do something like that again um, and a, as a part of this series, because it was awesome, and it was really fun to get to discover, like, around us, you know, what are you like, and how can I better interact with you, and, and it, I don't know, I, I loved it personally. I think most of us that went through it really loved it as well. And so this series to me is sort of like the same concept in terms of I'm going to be doing a lot of practical teaching like this, but also I really want to keep tying it back into that overarching mission of what God has called you to and what God has called our church to. So I want to land for a second just talking about the church for just a moment because we sort of started talking about the vision of the church a few weeks ago. And, um, and so as much as this series is about you, it's also about us. And I don't want to lose sight of that as well. So as we're moving into 2018, one of the things I'm really excited about is continuing to align ourselves with that vision that God has given us uniquely, that mission that he's given us to do that I believe is really important for our city. That's one of the reasons why we're doing this sort of filming night, even though it sounds so ridiculous and weird, and I understand that. Um, <laughs> it's my gift to you, though, so that it didn't have to happen on a Sunday morning. Um, but there's a place in me where, you know, I'm like, you know what, Lord, I love what we have going on here. I love that it's small. I love that we all get to know each other. But I also know that our mission is, is, is more than that, not more than you as people, but more than a small setting, right? Because what we're doing here and communicating the truth of interacting with Holy Spirit on a personal level and all of that, it's designed to be filling more hearts and minds, It's designed to be capturing people, to be rescuing people from their bondage, whatever that bondage looks like, whether that's not, whether that's needing salvation or deliverance or inner healing or just understanding or whatever it is. And so I I feel like as we are moving into this um, fire starter season thing, what we've decided to name it, what we're going for this year is the upper room outpouring. So when I shared this with you guys originally, we talked about that Acts 2, the mighty rushing sound, Right. Um, and God has just consistently been just confirming that to me in every way you could possibly imagine. I'm like, I got it, Lord. We're going for it, right? We're going to walk in tandem with you because what we want to see here take place is an upper room outpouring, essentially, is a moment where the Holy Spirit becomes like Pentecost, becomes so strong that it's undeniable that everybody gets to have a part to play, and we're all lit up. People, some of you guys have been sending me different prophetic words that other people have been sharing um, on their prophetic ministry sites or whatnot. And one of them was about, um, I think he called it like burning ones. And it was about um, uh, people being burning with their, with their mission. Is that right, Ashley? Is that what you're calling it? It was like, like he, this person saw a vision of all these people who were lit on fire with purpose. They were, that's what it was. They were burning with purpose and they were burning with their mission. And Ashley sent that to me and she was like, this is what, this is what's happening. Like, this is where we're going. I'm like, that's amazing, right? There was another one that Sharon sent to me that was about this, essentially the same thing, just different concept of, of a generation of people rising up that are so on fire for God and on fire for what they're called to do. And so what I believe our overarching mission for this season, it's that. It's you guys getting fueled up, getting lit on fire, and then burning for the world to see. Not on some platform or anything like that, but in your sphere, in those five people closest to you, in those 10 people closest to you. So I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about the upper room outpouring happening. I don't know about you, but um, God is just too good to not want everything he has, right? I mean, I have moments where I think, oh, what are people going to think? And then I'm like, you know what, Lord, we weren't called to be liked or accepted. What are they going to think? I hope they think, wow, I need some of that in my life. I hope they think, what the heck happened to you? (laughs) 
You're like burning with mission. You're, you know, what changed? Like, yeah, well, this upper room outpouring has been happening at my church and you should get a taste of it. Because it is so good. It's so good. Okay. I want us to end just by praying. Um, I'm going to turn on a song. And um, what I want to do is um, I want you to pray over the person that's next to you. So if you're not next to somebody, um, go grab somebody. And um, and I want to just bless this journey. Because I honestly, I don't think it's going to be a hard journey. I don't think it's going to be a difficult thing. I think it's going to be a journey of beautiful self-discovery that you're all going to really enjoy. But I want to bless it. I want to just, I want you to pray, um, you know, what you would want somebody to pray for you as you're rediscovering yourself. And some of you guys may have already done something like this before. And that's great. This is another layer on it. I believe there's more revelation that God's going to share. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's how I want to end. Is that good? You guys okay with that? So reach your hand over, put it on the shoulder of the person next to you. And, um, and then I'm going to pray at the end to sort of wrap us up. So when you're ready, go ahead and just pray. Just a blessing over them in their journey.